We um, we are in a conversation um, called Iron Age Wisdom, and the idea is that um, if you want something bad enough, you'll look in places that aren't easy to look. And I believe that um, that uh, we are in need of wisdom. Um, that our society is struggling in a lot of different ways from what I would call uh, broadly a meaning crisis. There's a lot of people who aren't sure why they're here and and um, uh, really even sometimes who they are. And so we are looking for wisdom um, in uh, the unlikely places because I think we've we've had opportunity to look in all the obvious places and we haven't found as much wisdom as we need. Whatever wisdom we did find, it wasn't enough for our needs. So that's why um, I believe we're having um, so many difficulties in our society today. So so we are looking at the Iron Age to see if they had some wisdom there. Now, because it is the Iron Age, we know that we're, whatever wisdom we find there is not going to be directly applicable because the Iron Age was the Iron Age and we are, you know, whatever they call us, the Information Age. Uh, they, they had an agricultural society. We have an information economy. There's a lot of ways that their society was different. We're not looking for uh, policy prescriptions. We're not looking for things we can actually say, well, let's just take this and begin doing that. Instead, we're looking for the wisdom. So we're looking behind their policies to understand, is there a deeper idea here that we can actually adapt into our own uh, world? And so we are looking uh, at the the Old Testament law as an example of something that that served as wisdom for, uh, well, some people even today, uh, but... Um, but uh, I should say, many people, even today, some people still observe it as law, but a lot of people observe it as as a um, as a source of wisdom. So we're looking at the Old Testament law, and particularly we're looking at the book of Leviticus. And as I said last week, uh, this is for us something that Jesus fulfilled. We can find wisdom in it, but we don't have to be concerned about implementing these particular rituals. So it is something we're, we're consulting to understand better where God's heart lies. So... Um, so we are looking at the book of Leviticus, um, and uh, today we're going to look at the the, the uh, year of jubilee. And um, because because um, because we are looking for wisdom, I, I can stress that that we are not necessarily looking for something practical. Um, and uh, if we're not looking for something that is necessarily practical, well, jubilee certainly qualifies. It is impractical. And as far as we can tell, both from the Bible and from historical literature, uh, it was never really practiced. Or, or when it was practiced, it was practiced in fits and spurts. And mostly what we see as we look at the, the Hebrew Scriptures is the prophets, when they mention it, they're mentioning how people aren't doing it right. And in fact, um, the, the very the close of the, the Old Testament in the way that the, the books are organized in, in, a, in a Hebrew Bible, uh, it closes with the, the second uh, book of Chronicles. And it specifically says, because they have not celebrated the, the Jubilee, um, Babylon and came, came and conquered them. And then the land had its rest um, for 70 years. So there's this ominous note of, uh, because of this accumulated failure to observe the, the Jubilee, um, now uh, the, the Babylonians conquered Israel. So... So that's the way that the, the Hebrew Bible is organized, that, that wh- where we see in it is mostly people saying, well, nobody does this. Why, why do we have these rules if nobody does them? And so I want to say, we don't have to worry about doing them, but we do, do have to say, well, why are they here? What, what do they teach us? So the, the uh, Jubilee is impractical, and it is also unpracticed as far as we know, that, you know, except for occasional 
uh, reforms, there might be a few years where people do it, but but it is impractical, and we're going to see uh, what makes it impractical. So, um, so uh, I know that that it's I'm I'm probably overselling this, but but the problem is why would we do something if even the people uh, three thousand years ago weren't doing it? Well, I think we can find wisdom in it. So, so what is the the year of jubilee? Well, it builds on the idea of Sabbath rest. So, if you go back to chapter twenty three of Leviticus, there's detailed instructions about implementing the Sabbath. Uh, the idea of a, of a weekly period of rest that God ordains, God actually makes it part of the Ten Commandments. You can go all the way back to Exodus 20 if you want to see the the specific commandment about Sabbath rest. But then it's it's fleshed out a little bit in uh, Leviticus 23, along with some other periods of rest. So God also mandates a a monthly celebration of the of the new month, and that was also a day off, um, a day of rest. And then there's um, three annual festivals that are that are compulsory for people in that culture. So there's a lot of rest going on already. About 70 days a year are already days of rest. So so how could you build on that? If you've already got, you know, one day in five is already a day off, then how can you build on that? Well, how about if you have a whole year off? And so the, the passage we're looking at here in chapter 25 begins with the idea of a Sabbath year. So the Lord says to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, once you enter the land that I'm giving you, the land must celebrate a Sabbath rest to the Lord. So the land itself, back in in, um, the previous chapters and in Exodus, we learned how the Sabbath is to be celebrated by all the Israelites, that that, uh, all the Israelites, their children, their servants, um, their their um, animals and even the foreigners living in the land all celebrated the Sabbath. So so this is pretty much it's already covered. So what's left? Well, how about the land? We'll celebrate the the land itself. Will have a Sabbath rest. And so how do you do that? He says um, you will plant your fields for six years and prune your vineyards and gather their crops for six years. But in the seventh year, the land will have a special Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You must not. Um, you must not plant your um, uh, your fields or prune your vineyards. You must not harvest the secondary growth of your produce or gather the grapes of your freely growing vines. So that's that's the idea. Is you just don't do anything. You watch your plants grow, but you don't go encourage them. You don't plow. You don't prune. You don't harvest. And uh, when when they do come come uh, whatever does grow whatever whatever is available you you can't harvest but you can go out and pick some and eat it that day or something like that that's that's the idea is it's it's a total time of rest and in fact it's remarkable there's nothing else you're supposed to do I mean there's no there's no uh, you know then you go on the pilgrimage you know this buys you time so you can now go on the pilgrimage there's nothing like that it doesn't say you go to the 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 temple and perform certain rituals it just says. You, you know, take a year off and, you know, watch the plants grow. And so that's the idea of the Sabbath year, that there's no particular thing you're supposed to do except rest for a whole year while the, while the, the land rests. Now, you may be thinking, that doesn't sound very practical. Like I said, that does not sound very practical, at least not to me. Um, I'm not a farmer, but it's hard to imagine that that would work out. And um, if you're having the same kind of thoughts as, well, how could that even work? Well, um, you're not the first person. You, we know you're not the first person because God anticipates this question. Um, if we go down to, to uh, verse 21, we're not going to look uh, at the whole chapter, but in verse 21, he says, uh, 20 and 21, he says, um, suppose you ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't plant our um, uh, if we don't plant or gather our crops then? And God promises, I've got that. 
He says, I will send my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will make enough produce for three years. So God says, I'll take care of that. I just want you to sit around watching the plants grow for a year. So that is the, the year of Sabbath. And, and um, it sounds impractical, and, and it probably sounded impractical to the first listeners as well. So how do you, how do you improve on something which is already impractical? Um, how, how, can you, how can you take that to the next level? Well, the answer is with the year of Jubilee. So what is the year of Jubilee? Well, the Jubilee, the word Jubilee actually comes from the sound of the ram's horn. When you blow a ram's horn, um, the sound that it makes is the yovel, which uh, in, in English, the, the, they, they change the Y into a J, um, as they, several Bible words have this problem. So it's uh, the yovel makes the Jubilee sound. And so the year gets its name from the fact that you begin the year by blowing um, the horn. It says in verse 9, he says, have the trumpet blown in the tenth day. So um, count off seven weeks of years. That is seven times seven, so that the seven weeks of years equals 49 years. So if you shaky on your old uh, times tables, there you go. Um, and then have the trumpet blown on the tenth day of the seventh month. So they had two... So. There's two calendars. There's one that that starts and stops in the spring, and there's another one that starts and stops in the the fall. Uh, the, the if you've ever known anybody who celebrated Rosh Hashanah, that's the one in the fall. So this is saying the one in the seventh month. That's that's this year. So it starts um, about half a year after the other year. So um, make that fifty year fiftieth year holy, proclaiming freedom throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. So um, that's. That's the idea of the uh, year of Jubilee, and it's going to go on for the rest of the chapter explaining that. But you may be saying, well, wait a minute. What does freedom have to do with rest? Uh, you know, that did, did we just pull some kind of a switch? Because I thought the idea was this ever-increasing amount of rest. We start with the weekly rest and monthly, then the annual rests, and then, and then every seven years, year-long rest. How do you improve on that with freedom? Uh, particularly if you're thinking, well, wait, I'm, I'm free. I'm not one of these indentured servants, you know, that's, that's around. I'm not, you know, I, I'm a full citizen of Israel. Why, what, you know, what's, what's the, um, how is this a help to me? Well, you do get the extra Sabbath year, so there's that. But, but it's those indentured servants that are the problem. That, and, and that's what it's going to talk about. So, um, it says, it says, um, proclaim freedom to all the inhabitants. So um, that is what the Jubilee is about. The reason for the horn is so that all the inhabitants know that they have been set free. So um, uh, he goes on to say, it will be a Jubilee year for you. Each of you must return to your family property and to your extended family. So the problem is that people, you know, it's been 50 years. People aren't where they belong, that they they have, you know, time has, has happened. People have moved on. Um, Things, you know, a lot of water's gone under the bridge, and this is basically the opportunity to put things right again. So everybody goes back to their original land. Now it's not their original land. In fact, at the beginning of the chapter, we heard God say, once you enter the land that I'm giving you, God is saying, right now it belongs to the Canaanites, but that's okay. All the earth belongs to me, and I'm going to do some reallocation here. So God says, I'm giving you the land of the Canaanites, and when I give it to you, you guys are going to apportion it according to you know all the different uh, uh, details that are laid out in the law, uh, so that every tribe will get their own land, and then and then um, 
the, the clans within the tribe and then even individual family, uh, uh, large families will, will get their own, uh, generational chunk of land. But things happen. Sometimes you, you lose the land for, for different reasons. And this says, will you go back to it? And it means that the same way I took the land from the Canaanites and gave it to you, I'm taking it from whoever has the land now and they are to give it back to you. So God is saying, it's my land, and I'm going to reorganize it again uh, so it's back the way it was a while ago. So, so, all right, so there's a land reform, but again, what does this have to do with freedom? You know, why are we proclaiming freedom? Well, because now you're free to go back. And I don't just mean that there's not a no trespassing sign there and you have the title. No, I mean you can go back because you're no longer indentured. Um, that that a, a lot of this chapter talks about um, indentured servitude. And the reason for that is that there wasn't a concept of bankruptcy in that culture. It really, in none of those cultures in, in that time frame, nobody had that idea. The idea was that if you got in over your head, if you know you, you had debts that were greater than your assets, then uh, first you sold off all your assets so you'd lose the land. But if they weren't enough to cover the debts, well, then you got you were an asset, and so you became somebody else's asset. You were compelled to work involuntarily, unpaid, until the debt was paid off. And you know you may say, well, how can somebody who's a slave uh, ever pay off a debt? And I imagine it was pretty difficult, but. But it was also kind of a tool to encourage your relatives to pay off the debt. You know, when they see, you know, their sister-in-law and their brother-in-law go, you know, into into involuntary service, they might start deep, dipping into their pockets and saying, well, maybe we can uh, help with that. Um, but whether, you know, maybe you didn't. Maybe, maybe you don't have any relatives. Maybe you're from a small family or they're as poor as you are and nobody can bail you out. Well, the answer is in the year of Jubilee, everybody goes back. It says, if the Israelite is not bought back, if for whatever reason nobody pays off your debts, then you still get to go free. They and their children must be released in the Jubilee year because the Israelites belong to me. In the same way the land belongs to me, so do the Israelites. Every human being on earth belongs properly to God. That's the that's the assertion God is making, and God's saying, I'm going to reallocate the relationships among you. So he concludes by saying, each of you must return to your family property. So it's interesting. It, it repeats the exact words. It says, you must return to your family property. It doesn't say you may. It says you must. That the, the purpose of Jubilee is to put things back the way they used to be. God is saying that uh, the, the original allocations of lands and families is what I wanted, and uh, you can change things around based on the circumstances uh, of, of whatever's going on in that culture. You can change that around for 50 years, but I'm not going to let it stay um, that way forever. I liked it the way it was, and so I'm going to put it right again. So every every um, <clears throat> every 50 years you do that, uh, you, you give the land back, and you give the indentured servants back, that their their indenture is is, um, is uh, finished. And not only that, there, there's a bunch of rules scattered throughout the, the, the law that explain the details of that, how you actually implement that. So, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says you must not um, just set them free, say, you know, have a nice life. Instead, you must provide them what they need so they can become farmers again. They've been, you know, somewhere between zero and 50 years, they've been an indentured servant, They've lost all of whatever whatever they had in that area. So you provide them fully from your flock, 
food and wine. You must give them, give to them from that which the Lord your God has blessed you. There's kind of a promise there. Deuteronomy is, is uh, often characterized by these little promises where God says, um, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to trust that you're going to share that with the people that you're going to discharge because the year of Jubilee is coming up. So, so the idea is, is that, you know, what would happen if you choose to shortchange them? Well, it might be a long time before the next blessing. Um, so so uh, that, that, that's kind of the way it's characterized. But there's a lot of these rules that say basically everything goes back to the old normal. That, you know, we've had a lot of talk over the last couple of years about the new normal. And what God is saying is sometimes circumstances demand a new normal. But it's not really normal. That God desires the old normal. And that is the purpose of the year of Jubilee, to send things back to the way they were. So if the Sabbath year is a year-long vacation, then the year of Jubilee is a generational do-over. Once every 50 years, chance to just kind of put things back the way they were. We just get this celestial mulligan and, and everything goes back to where God originally wanted it to be. So that is the year of Jubilee. And like I said, it is, it may sound impractical to you, and that's okay because it probably wasn't practiced, or certainly not very much. Um, but we're not looking for policy. We're looking for a diagnosis. We're looking for wisdom. We're, we want to know, is there something in here? You know, why was it here? Especially if nobody ever paid that much attention to it. If mainly it was prophets complaining about no one's doing this. Why is it here? What wisdom can it provide to us? Well, we may start by saying, look, you know, this is clearly, you know, there's nothing for us here because we don't have indentured servants anymore. Um, we don't put people in jail for or, or uh, sell them off to pay off debts. We have bankruptcy. Well, we do have bankruptcy, but not all debts can be discharged. So, for example, there's a active debate about student loans. You hear about people who, you know, they get their degree and underwater basket weaving or whatever, and they graduate with, you know, a, a degree that'll pay them $20,000 a year, and they've got $100,000 of debt, they are they are out of luck. And so there's a big question about, um, well, first of all, should you take that loan out in the first place? But second of all, if you just have made a terrible mistake, if you basically made a bad investment in your future, is there any way to get a do-over? Is there any way to say, you know what, that was a disaster. I wish I hadn't done that. So um, in a lot of areas, we do have bankruptcy, but not in every area. So there's a, a question about that. But there's also, I think part of the diagnosis here goes beyond that specific issue. There, there's an idea of alienation and concentration. By by alienation, I mean that, that people lose things. They, 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 um, they lose the things that they had. They, they lose their equity. When we lived in California um, during the... During the um, was it called the Great Financial Crisis? Uh, the most recent Great Financial Crisis in 2008. Um, the the neighborhood we were in was very hard hit. The, the the where the church was, and I would drive back and forth from from uh, home. And as I drove through this neighborhood, it was like every other house was a bank sale or a short sale or a foreclosure or something like that. It was amazing. And I'm not kidding. I'm talking about about one house in two. It was really badly hit. That that community, or at least that neighborhood within the community. So um, there was a lot of people who were being alienated. They were underwater, and they just walked away. That that they had, you know, whatever whatever equity they had in the house, they had now lost. That they were not 
becoming indentured servants, but they'd lost everything they had. They were alienated from whatever wealth they had been trying to build there. But the other problem with that is that it's paired with that. When you lose something, it's very likely somebody else may find a bargain. So we've been seeing things in the news uh, over the past year about how, well, whatever problems there are in our housing market today, they're not as bad as in 2008. And, you know, I don't know. I rent. So I, I, I don't know. But but simultaneously, along with that with that argument, um, you also see stories about how we have uh, wealth being concentrated in a smaller and smaller number of hands. So uh, stories about how Bill Gates became the um, the uh, uh, largest uh, private um, property owner in in the country. So so we see these sorts of stories where we go, there's there's something. Uh, you know, I don't have a solution for this, but it seems odd that so many people are losing what they've got, and a few people are finding, you know, distressed merchandise that they can snap up for a song. That doesn't seem quite right. And there's other forms of equity that people have. Um, uh, you know, some people um, don't, don't have a house, but maybe they're they are uh, an owner or part owner of a small business, and we've been seeing the same sort of problems there. Again, this has been uh, exacerbated by the. Um, by the pandemic. So we've seen how um, about a third of small businesses were closed due to the pandemic because they don't have the resources to weather that kind of storm. And at the same time that millions of small businesses were, were decimated, and in, in many cases about a third of them were, were closed, at the same time some giant companies did very well. You know, who, who has not ordered from Amazon in the last 18 months? You know, all right, there's one. Okay, so so I don't mean to shame everybody, but Alice, but but um, but you know, there these these tech companies have done extraordinarily well. So so there's the alienation. There's people who've lost their their business. They've lost what they had put into their business, and at the same time, there's businesses that have done very well. Seven tech firms gained three and a half trillion dollars in value over the last year. And then, you know, you know, I don't have a small business either. You know, I'm still not sure if this really bothers me, if it's just kind of a theoretical problem. Well, there's a lot of people who um, are uh, um, small landlords. You know, if you've got a duplex, um, you know, you rent the, the other side to somebody. Or you've got another property that you rent because you kind of got your thinking you'll, you'll retire there. And so you own this right now and you're trying to rent it. Well, um, the uh, eviction moratoriums, those have hurt the small landlords. And at the same time that the small landlords are being hurt, we're hearing about how the, the big companies, the Black Rocks and so forth, are snapping up whole neighborhoods because people are having so much difficulty holding onto their property. So we see these, these, these paired problems of the alienation and the concentration, the alienation of people's equity. And at the same time, the concentration of equity in a small number of hands. And the, the, the purpose or, or the, the aim of the year of Jubilee is to say, and some of that's just inevitable. It's going to happen because, because life happens. But there should be some mechanism of resetting it. There should be some mechanism of, of saying, okay, now we go back to the way they should be, the way that things were originally. And so, so there's that problem. And, and there, there's, so, so, so at least I think the diagnosis is still timely. Now, you know, the, the, the treatment, you know, it may be like leeches or something where that wouldn't make any sense in our society today. We've got better treatments, so that's fine. But there's a question, you know, is the diagnosis even accurate? So that, I think that's something we can think about. But there's another issue, which is when you're alienated, 
uh, you know, picture this society. You have been kicked off your family farm, right? And, you know, you're working now, you know, two miles down the road for the big landowner. Okay, well, you're isolated. You've been cut off. You, you don't get, you know, you don't get to go to the holidays and so forth with the family, right? You don't get to go to Thanksgiving, things like that. You're now cut off. You've lost the support of whatever extended um, social capital you have, whatever extended family you've got. So you are now more isolated and, and, um, you have become atomized. You become much more of a single thing and not part of this big structure. So you're more of, a, of an atomized individual. And whatever they dealt with in, in the, the you know, 1000 BC in the Iron Age, um, uh, we've got that way more than that. Um, Americans are far more isolated than, than um, uh, anybody in the uh, ancient world could have imagined. We talked last week about how we are weird that we are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Our society is far more isolated and atomized than theirs would have been. And we voluntarily move. We move all the time. It's actually, Americans move more than Europeans, that we are a very mobile society. And that's great because you can reinvent yourself. But it also means that you've lost um, or at least weakened the, the relationships you had in the last place. And sometimes we move because we've got, you know, work reasons. Sometimes we move because we just don't like our neighbors. And we say, these people, you know, you know, I don't like living in a red state or I don't like living in a blue state. I'm just going to go somewhere where there's people who are more like me. And so, so we see all the different reasons people move. But it's not just moving. Even when you stay in a community, people are more and more isolated. They're more and more, um, alienated from other people that there was a study that earlier this year the Pew organization did a survey and they found out that more Americans are living alone than ever before and and that's at all uh, age groups not just you know you can imagine when people get old you know their partner dies or whatever it's not just widowing um it is it is people in their 30s who are just to a greater extent than ever before they're living alone so if if that's something you want to do if you want to live alone if you want to live you know you you cut ties with your family, you know, that that's fine. But what if you don't? You know, what if you had to move? What if you had to move because of your job or because of because of whatever the um whatever the particular uh, circumstances of your life are, wouldn't it be nice to have a do-over? I mean, you can't, right? The ship has sailed, the milk is spilled. You don't get a do-over. But what if you could? Wouldn't it be great if you could have a do-over? Jesus' most famous parable is a story of a do-over. We read about how the young man, the, the, the lost son, the younger son, he went off to the far country and he squandered his inheritance. And then he comes to his senses. He's sitting in a pig pen, hungry, starving, filthy. And he says, I had it better back then. He says, I will get up and go to my father. I am Isolated, I'm alienated. I'm going to go back. The most famous parable Jesus has is one of a do-over. And really, the whole idea of the year of Jubilee, the year of Sabbath, is is a pointer to a do-over. It's saying, remember the way God originally planned things to be. Remember the garden. Do you remember what God told the man in the in the garden? The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all of the garden's trees. That was it. Every tree but the one, avoid that one. But every other tree, that's it. There's no work. You 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 till the it says you don't till the land. You you um you work the land. 
Um, but uh, it, there's not this idea of, of organized uh, uh, work. Um, in chapter 3, as a result of the curse, God says, now you will actually have to work to get the produce. But in the garden, it was just there. All you had to do was go over and pick it up. There's this picture. This is what God's intent was, that that the 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 do over the 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 do over the jubilee points to the do over that God is ultimately doing in Christ. Jesus inaugurates his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, preaching at the uh, the synagogue. There he says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to preach good news to the poor." to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus has done. This is the do-over that we need. And it's the do-over that the Jubilee points to. So, it's impractical but it reveals God's heart. And more than that, it reveals what God has already done. Jesus has already done what needed to be done. He's fulfilled the law. He's done what needed to be done so that we can have the do-over. So, how do we how do we do that? Jesus has fulfilled the year of the Lord's favor. That's done. So, how do we do that? How do we how do we how do we live out the promise that Jesus makes that I have done this? that this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. How do we do that? Well, I think what we have to do is we have to practice the impractical. And so uh, if if everything Jesus said is true, I think the first thing we can say is, is, how's my risk tolerance? See, I don't want to lose the farm. You know, Grandpa, he was a drinker. You know, he had that bad harvest. There was, you know, Grandpa had his problems. And I'm very risk-averse because of that. So I don't want to lose the family farm. I mean, we can ask ourselves, well, maybe we need to be a little more risk tolerant. Not because Grandpa was wise, but because because the idea of a do-over is wise, and we have a do-over in Christ. So we can begin thinking, maybe I need to change my risk tolerance. Maybe I need to be a little more um, willing to try things that don't seem practical. So there's that that basic idea. But but there's there's three things... You know, it kills me to leave any room at all in the program because I just love pulling in these verses from here and there. But I left some room because I want you to write something down. I want you to write down your answers to three questions. Nobody else is going to see this. You don't have to submit it. Um, everybody gets an A. Um, but but um, I do want you to write it down. So um, so write this down. And if you don't if you don't have a pen, write it down when you get home. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. The first one is the first one is this. I want you to think of somebody you used to be in a better relationship with, somebody that they moved or you moved, um, but they used to be closer. I mean, not just geographically closer, but closer. And maybe you, you catch up, you send Christmas cards, or, or maybe you call them every month or something. What could you do to reconnect with that person or to, or to strengthen that, that relationship? The, the, you know, and this is not a stranger. This is somebody you actually knew, somebody who was close. What can you do to reconnect to that person? Who is that person, and what is one thing that you can do to reconnect or strengthen that relationship? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, think of somebody else who is out of place. They're not in their hometown. They're not 
They, they, they came here, maybe they've been here a little while, maybe they, but, but they, they, they've lost some of their social capital. They don't have the same network they used to have. That they are now more isolated, more alienated, more atomized than they were where they came from. Think of somebody you know like that. And say, what can I do to let them know I'm here to help? That if they need my help, that I can, I can, I can serve that purpose while they're here away from where their network is. What can I do to support them? And let them know. Let them know that you're there. And then lastly, I want you to think of somebody that there's distance. Maybe it's emotional, maybe it's geographical distance, and you're both kind of okay with that. That things were said. What can you do? What can you do to let that person have a do-over? Whether they take it or not, what can you do? What do you have to let go of? What land do you have to return so that they can have a do-over? What, you know, whatever it was, implements of farming, I forget what they all were. What do you have to, what do you have to give up so that that person can have a do-over? Now, whether they get it or whether they take it or not, that's up to them. But what can you do? What can you let go of so that they can have that do-over? Think about that person. Think about that thing you have to give up. And then say, how can I let them know that? That I have given it up. And it's theirs if they ever want it. The year of Jubilee is only impractical if we choose not to practice it. Jesus has made it possible for us to have the greatest do-over ever. He found us in the pig pen. He said, come home. Dad's looking for you. Let's be that kind of people. Let's live into the promise that Jesus gives us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the year of Jubilee and the, the, the things it reveals about your heart. Lord, help us to... Help us to trust that, that you, your desire is not that we get so dug deep in a hole that we can never get out. But your desire is for us to live boldly, knowing that you will always bail us out. Lord, we ask you to spread this good news with the people in our lives, the people who used to be in our lives, the people who are now, and especially the people who have hurt us or that we have hurt. Lord, help us to model the kind of do-over that Christ gave everyone. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.